Welcome to PD Insider, the podcast edition. In each episode, we bring you conversations with experts in the law firm professional development community so that you can stay current on industry trends, topics, and innovations. In this episode, PLI's Craig Miller speaks with Milana Hogan of Sullivan and Cromwell. Milana shares her insights into the evolution of professional development in law firms, predictions for the PD community, and discusses success factors for women in large law firms, including grit and the value of a growth mindset. Thank you so much for having me. Pleased to be here. Let's begin by talking about the role of professional development in large law firms and its evolution. It seems like much has happened in a brief amount of time. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's been an explosion uh, in the PD function over the past uh, decade or so. Um, And one good example of that is the membership of the PDC. And it used to be a small organization. Uh, When it started out a number of years ago, it was just a handful of people who had this role in law firms. And the reason it was so small is because there really weren't that many people who did these types of things. And so uh, that membership has grown along with the law firm and the law firm industry's recognition of the importance of that type of function in-house and and all the value that it can add. And so now, I was just recently looking at a membership list, and we have somewhere in the neighborhood of 600 members, which is just really remarkable when you think about that and and most of that growth happening in such a short span of time. So it's it's really incredible. Um, I also think about when I joined PD, which was somewhere in the neighborhood of 12 years ago, um, all of the law firms that I was, you know, chatting with about what they were doing had, you know, maybe a mentoring program or perhaps a competency model if they were really evolved. Um, They may have had a couple of lawyers who liked training and offered training in-house, but it really wasn't too much beyond that. And that was even just, you know, just a bit more than a decade ago. And now if you look at the offerings uh, in most law firms, they have incredibly robust programming. They have people who are experts, often former lawyers, who are in-house and delivering really high-quality programming. They have uh, people who are in charge of the staffing functions. They have not only mentoring programs, but career development programs. Uh, Sometimes they have in-house coaches. Uh, one firm that I know has an in-house therapist uh, who helps with stress management. So it's really evolved in a, in a tremendous way. And as it has, the need for more bodies who are skilled in this area has really evolved. And so I think you've seen a lot of shift in terms of who is doing this role. And the nice thing about that, too, is that it becomes, I think, as it evolves, a more attractive role for people who are considering what they might want to do with their careers, Uh, people who may have gone to law school and practiced for a bit and want to stay in that space but don't necessarily want to be practicing lawyers or uh, people who are in the HR space and and want to work with lawyers who are really interesting, sometimes challenging, but in a good way, uh, group of people to work for incredibly high standards. Uh, So you uh, you see it just becoming this more attractive profession. And a lot of that membership growth that I talked about earlier is driven by um, by junior members, people who are just new to the profession or attracted to it in one way or another and are, are really looking to learn from other professionals. So we've just seen so much growth, uh, so much expansion of, of this sort of standard set of services offered, and, uh, and it's been really exciting to watch. That's great. Uh, have there been any demonstrable sort of measures of success that uh, the firms have been able to point to in order to support uh, 
these programs? Yeah, it's a really good question. And I think it, you know, we always, and I think anybody in an HR function to some extent struggles with, with ROI and how do you measure uh, your return on investment for these types of things? And I think there's, you know, that has evolved as the profession has evolved. And there's a lot of ways that people look to measure success. And so, you know, one sort of basic way, which you all incorporate at, at PLI is, is course evaluations and, and asking, you know, to what extent does this particular course offering or program, you know, impact your success and how and you can measure that both immediately after the program and then, you know, at some point out to see what learning was retained. And so uh, that process has gotten more evolved. People have gotten a little bit more savvy about the way in which to set up those evaluations so that the output is actually useful to you in some way. Um, I've also seen other firms measure it through their performance evaluation process. So are people getting better results when we measure things like their legal writing ability? And you can see that pretty clearly a lot of times coming out in the evaluations. It may be the case that, you know, prior to a certain offering, everybody is struggling in this area. And then, you know, six months after the offering, you see, you know, a lot less negativity in a performance evaluation or even, you know, even really positive comments after after one intervention. So that's another way to do it. Um, certainly partner feedback is huge, making sure that the partners are getting what they need, which is, you know, ultimately why we exist as departments is to, is to make sure we're, you know, developing these lawyers and, and giving the partners the kind of service that they need. So, um, you know, talking to the partners and making sure there's really good and open lines of communication is a good way as well. Um, associate satisfaction surveys, engagement surveys are really helpful. Um, recruiting is another good way. I think one of the things we look at is to what extent is this something that incoming lawyers are seeking out, you know, and to what extent is that going to be a factor for them when they're making a decision in terms of which uh, firm they want to join. And what we've consistently seen is that really matters to them. And so having a robust program and, and a good set of offerings is, is really will remain important. It's important now and I think will continue to, to remain important as we move forward. That, that's great. Uh, what other sort of current trends have you observed? What are sort of recent highlights within the industry? Yeah, so there's been a lot of really cool things uh, happening, and it's one of the reasons I love the industry conferences, because you get a chance to come together with, you know, really super smart colleagues who are doing interesting things, and we all sort of compare notes and, and talk about what we've done and how we can evolve the profession and, and move things forward. So I've seen a lot of interesting things. I've seen uh, a lot of focus on wellness as something that is uh, really important and, you know, ties in very tightly to the professional development offerings. Um, and I think the, the theory is basically, you know, the more healthy and robust you feel mentally, the better you perform. And there's just such a rich amount of data to support all of that. And so firms are really understanding how important that is. And it's not just firms. I think there's sort of a wellness movement, if you will. I don't know if anyone's named it that and if it exists officially in that capacity. But you know, you see that elsewhere as well, that people really want to offer programs that make people perform at their best. And the way to do that is to make sure they feel their best. And so I think that's, I talked earlier about, you know, seeing more coaches or uh, or even a therapist, and you are seeing more and more of that. And I think it's, I think it's a smart move to do it that way. So uh, focus on wellness is big. Um, I've also seen uh, an increased focus on, on data and using data to try to uh, have, have that, you know, to have a rich set of material that can inform your strategy. And so people are getting more nuanced about how they do that. I was uh, actually just yesterday got an invitation to a 
uh, to a data conference where they were literally going to teach you how to take HR data and 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 try to you know turn that around into actionable feedback that you can use when designing uh, course curriculum. So people are really focused on that. And again, I think just like wellness, that's a really good thing for them to be doing because it helps you see patterns in ways that wouldn't wouldn't be obvious if you were just you know having conversations. Sometimes data really helps a pattern pop for you in a really meaningful way. So I think increased focus on data. Um, I've also seen, and I talked a little bit about this earlier, but I've seen a real focus on on just all of these different backgrounds coming together to support this profession. And, and one of the reasons I love it most is that it taps into all these different areas. So, you know, on one day you might be a therapist, you know, sort of coaching somebody through a difficult situation. And on the next day, you know, you're wearing your HR hat and you're figuring out what policy is going to best support this learning effort. And you're thinking, you know, about designing and drafting a policy. And that's very technical. Um, uh, and very strategic. And then, you know, the next day you are a trainer and you're up in front of an audience and you're giving a speech or you're, you know, trying to teach somebody something or, you know, impart some sort of, uh, you know, critical learning. And so you get to play that role of teacher or professor. Um, a couple of times I've been an actor in a vignette that we've done for one thing or another. So it just really allows you, I think, to try your hand at all of these disciplines. And there's something, you know, really exciting and thrilling about that. And I think that's a real significant trend that we've seen over the last couple of years is just what is the background that one needs to go into this profession? And it's just, uh, it's it's really expanded. It used to be, you know, former lawyers, and that's incredibly valuable. I wouldn't operate any PD operation without some former lawyers on the team. I think it's so mission critical. But then you also see people uh, like me who may have some educational background in uh, in education. Literally, I have my doctorate in education. Uh, I've seen PhDs in psychology, uh, people with experience in organizational psychology. I've seen people with MBAs, uh, people with coaching certificates. So you just see this you know, proliferation of backgrounds that come together to really nicely support that. And I think sort of the opening of PD to something that's available not only to former practicing lawyers, uh, but to everybody is is an exciting thing as well. That, that's interesting. Do you, do you see that as a trend that uh, people who are not traditionally have traditional legal backgrounds be pay, playing more of a role within the legal community? I do. I think it used to be skewed and you know I don't know exactly what the data is, but my best guess would be that it was you know majority former practicing lawyers, maybe 90 percent you know some years ago um, with maybe a couple of education people sprinkled in. And now I think the, the recent most recent stat that I saw is it's about 50/50. so 50 percent former practicing lawyers and 50 percent of sort of other relevant background. Um, you know, you know, and I think part of that is is PD, and as I talked about, sort of the exciting opportunities and, and your chance to try your hat at many different disciplines. But but I think part of it too is that uh, HR and sort of practices that are focused on people have become much more attractive to professionals generally. It used to be that HR were the people who sort of said, what time did you arrive? I noticed you were here at 9.36 instead of 9.30, right? And, uh, you know, where they were sort of enforcing the policy or, you know, the dress code or, you know, whatever was at play. And now it's becoming this much more interesting and evolved profession. And I think that's really exciting because it is so close to the strategy of any firm or any organization, whether it's legal or outside the industry. It's so central to to 
the firm and the corporation being able to operate at a really high level that you know you want your smartest most motivated people there you want your smart you want smart motivated people everywhere but especially there because it's so high touch there's so many opportunities to influence you know future leaders within the organization that it's just really in my view mission critical for the profession to attract really really engaged and interesting and, and motivated and super smart people to it so that's great. Speaking of sort of the varied backgrounds that come to the profession, yeah. the, the focus of your doctoral research was on success factors for women in large law firms. Yeah. Uh, recently in your work with the ABA, you expanded the scope of that work to address women in other segments of the legal market, such as small and medium law firms, government agencies, and corporations. You know, the data shows that women enter the profession at approximately the same rate as men. Law school classes have been split 50-50 for decades, decades, yet only 18% of equity partners and 24% of general counsel are women. Right. How ought this disparity in leadership yeah. be addressed? Yeah, so it, you know, it is, it's a problem that the entire legal industry is focused on as they should be. Uh, and those numbers, you know, you can look at them and they can be really stark and, and, you know, they can be alarming when you, when you try to, you know, digest what that is all about. But, you know, the research that I have done has been very focused on looking at what the women who do manage to make it to top leadership positions have in common. And, that's been really important uh, from my perspective. I think we can all acknowledge that to some extent there exist, you know, large uh, barriers or institutional barriers or obstacles uh, to women reaching high levels of advancement. And that's not particular to any firm. It's it's perhaps particular to the, you know, to the entire structure. And I think we should all continue to focus on making sure that we knock those down, that we figure out, you know, how we can prevent those from becoming insurmountable or, or any of that. So everybody needs to continue to be focused on that. I, I would never say take the foot off the gas pedal on, on that initiative. But my research is focused on let's look at the people who do make it to the top and find out what they have in common. And I've been able to identify a couple of traits that they do have in common. And then the goal from there is to take those traits, which are teachable, luckily, uh, to the more junior women and try to impart those and get them to practice those early, early on, because those are you know tremendously predictive of success. And I'll, I'll give you two examples examples, you mentioned uh, some of them, but uh, one of them is grit, which is defined as uh, passion and perseverance for long-term goals. And it was a trait that was uh, developed, uh, a construct really, that was developed by Angela Duckworth, who is a uh, fantastically impressive professor at the University of Pennsylvania. And I had the good fortune of being in her class when I got my doctorate at Penn. And uh, she started teaching uh, about grit, and she must have been 20 minutes into module number one, the very outset of her uh, of her time in class with us and I thought you know just alarm bells were going off in my mind and I thought that's so fascinating because what she's talking about what she's describing is something that I have seen firsthand in the women partners that I've dealt with over the over the course of at this point you know and almost I don't know, long career. <laughs> and, and uh, you know, and I had seen this and I would have used maybe other synonyms to describe it, but there was something about them. There was something about the way that they approach things. It was a certain, you know, doggedness. It was a persistence. It was um, maybe a fire in the belly. It was something that really set them apart. And it made sense to me intuitively that these would be the people who would, you know, who would be left standing at the end of this really, you know, challenging gauntlet, right? And, um, 
and they just had this hunger and this excitement and this passion about what they were doing. And she had, you know, somehow named this in this really nice way. And, and not only had she named it, but she developed this way that you could measure it. Um, and measurement is so important, as we talked about earlier. And so she developed this little, uh, it's called the grit test. And you can take it, you answer some questions about yourself. It's self-report. So, you know, how do I respond? How do I behave? And it shoots out a score. And that score is your grit score. And so you can take that score and then you can measure that score against other measures of success within firms. And that's what I'd done, uh, as you mentioned, for my doctoral research. And then I wanted to bring that out and, and make it uh, applicable to more people than just those in law firms. I think we all know the stats that, you know, sometimes in, in New York City, it may, may feel like big law is the center of the universe, but actually most lawyers are not practicing law in big law. They're practicing elsewhere. They're uh, solo practitioners. They're working in government or for nonprofits or in-house. Um, and so I wanted to understand, I know grit matters to success for women lawyers in big law and does it matter elsewhere too? And I really wanted to understand not only does it matter, but how does it matter? Uh, and so we looked at a huge swath of women. We had uh, close to 5,000 women participate in a survey that was sent out through the ABA. And the survey measured their grit scores and also their growth mindset score. Um, and then we tracked it against measures of success. So for example, you know, if you're working in a corporation, one thing that you can say is if you are more gritty, you are more likely to perform better on an annual performance evaluation. And that's, of course, not going to be the only measure of success within a corporation. There's going to be many more. But that's certainly a powerful one. If you're getting better performance ratings, that's going to impact your uh, ability to be promoted down the line and uh, and other future opportunities. Um, so that's one measure. But there are many more measures and lots of examples. And so the exciting thing was we found that grit and growth mindset um, are really great predictors of success for women lawyers everywhere. And you know, to sort of circle back to what I started with, these are traits that you can develop and improve within yourself. So let's say you take the test and you find you don't have a very high grit score, and that's certainly true for some people. Well, that, in my mind, is great news because now you are aware of another trait that you can develop within yourself that's going to have a significant impact on your future success, and that's really, really exciting. Um, same thing is true of growth mindset. You may not have a growth mindset orientation, but that's something that you can develop over time. So if you don't have these things, great, you can develop them. If you do have them, it reinforces the behaviors that you've been doing and confirms firms, yes, these are sometimes difficult to behave in these ways. Sometimes it takes a lot of strength and perseverance and hard work to do it in that way, but they are likely to produce successful results down the road. So um, so it's been a really fun project. I've loved every minute of working with the ABA Commission on Women in the Profession, who is just made up of an unbelievably impressive, wonderful, uh, kind-hearted group of women uh, who are at the top of their game professionally, and, um, and they've just given given me a lot of leeway to do some really interesting research, which has been a total passion project of mine. Sounds terrific. Could you define for us a little bit more of the growth mindset, which I think is more of a belief uh, that yeah. all this work will eventually pay off? Yeah, absolutely. So growth mindset. So grit is, to your point, a bit of a behavior. So somebody who is gritty, you know, tends to behave or respond to situations in certain ways. And growth mindset is more of a belief. It's a belief that you have about yourself and your own most basic abilities. And we all have uh, a mindset or different mindsets about different things. So for example, I might have a very strong growth mindset about my ability 
to be uh, successful professionally. And I may have a totally fixed mindset about my ability when it comes to athletics. I may say, it doesn't matter how hard I try, we'll never be a good swimmer, for example. Um, so we all have mindsets and it's really you know, a belief, again, about our own abilities in certain spaces. And if you have what's called a growth mindset, which is the one that tracks and measures with success, you, you really don't believe that there are any ceilings or any uh, obstacles to your own success. You may experience them, but you, you would never internalize them. So in other words, somebody with a growth mindset, when they encounter a challenging situation, instead of saying, oh, it must be that I've just hit the limit of my ability, instead they say, oh, this isn't about me or my ability. This just means I need to approach the task differently. So they would view failure as an opportunity for learning or an obstacle as an opportunity to sort of come up with a new approach and a new design to what they're trying to do. So, um, so they don't let failure stop them. They are very, very focused on how to take in any data, feedback, good or bad, and try to turn that around into something more positive and move it forward. So uh, very, very focused on progress, uh, very, very firm belief in their own effort and their own efforts ability to impact their future success. So just pure belief in the power of effort to get them where they need to be. Someone with a fixed mindset wouldn't wouldn't have that view. So somebody with a fixed mindset would say, um, you know, and I, I actually will give you an example because it helps to illustrate it. When I was in high school, um, I had always been very good at math all the way through, um, assumed I was very good at math until I got to calculus. And then I had this moment where uh, suddenly it didn't make sense to me anymore. And, you know, I don't know what that was a function of. Maybe it was that it was now becoming legitimately more complex. Maybe it was that I didn't have a particularly good calculus teacher at the time. You know, it could have been any number of factors. It could also have been that I wasn't working as hard because I'd never had to work very hard before. But for whatever reason, I got to calculus and I thought, my literal thought, and I remember this very clearly, was, oh, I've hit my ceiling. Like, this is the point at which, you know, I'm good at math up until this point, and that's literally my ceiling is calculus. And I could sort of clearly define that in my mind. And what I did there was, you know, instead of sort of figuring out how to get through it, which somebody with a growth mindset would have done, they would have said, I don't, this isn't my ceiling. I just need to approach this differently. Um, I opted out. I was like, I'm done. I hate math. I'm never going to take math again. I don't want to do anything I'm not good at. You know, I'm, I'm done. I'm out. And I literally chose uh, my college because there were no core requirements and I wasn't going to have to take math ever again, you know, which is a funny, funny reason to choose a college. And, it, you know, it all worked out fine. There were plenty of other good offerings there and it was a wonderful college experience. But people make profound decisions based on their mindset or their belief. And so if you think something is insurmountable, you're not going to try to surmount it. And so you will opt out. And so that's critical for women in the profession because it's a very challenging profession. I don't think any woman that I know was attracted to the practice of law because she thought it would be easy, right? I mean, people are attracted to it because it's going to be complex and challenging and super interesting. And there's going to be a million ways to exercise your brain and to, you know, literally do gymnastics around complex issues. And, um, you know, and that's exciting. That's really exciting. But you need that growth mindset if you're going to withstand the setbacks, because when you're performing at that level at a high pace, really doing interesting, complex things, you're going to get knocked down. And when you get knocked down, if your first thought is, uh-oh, I'm done, then the, the danger of you opting out is high. And so we want people who are growth mindset oriented all the way. So it's a really interesting set of research. So that, yeah, so grit and growth mindset, really the two traits that uh, you uncovered in your research yep. is driving success among the women in large law firms. And that the good news is that it is teachable and learnable and reproducible yep. and people can actually uh, improve 
upon uh, the situation that way. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I should say they're not the only traits that predict success. We were looking at those two and, you know, obviously you're somewhat limited in any research exercise. We couldn't look at all the available traits. So I'm sure there's lots of other things that are tremendously predictive. One thing we did uncover uh, as an aside in the research was that ambition is a huge part of who makes it to the top. And that for me was very encouraging. You know, the people who really wanted this and who, you know, approach things in that way, who really wanted to get to the partnership level, you know, we're often more successful. And I think that suggests uh, that it's possible for people who who really want it. And so there was something good about that. But anyway, yes, there's lots of things that will predict success. These are two really powerful predictors. Finally, uh, returning more broadly to the subject of professional development, uh, any predictions for the PD community for 2019 and maybe beyond? Yeah, so uh, so one trend I think is also a prediction and that is uh, around wellness. I think that people will continue to be focused on wellness. We've seen, um, if you read the legal news as I do, um, an avid reader, uh, you'll see a lot of firms doing interesting things in, in that space, um, whether it's with respect to vacations or uh, as I said, an in-house uh, therapist or hiring people who are trained in coaching. Uh, I think that is, um, that is definitely something that we're going to see more of in 2019, for sure. Um, I think we will continue to see more in the data analytics space. I think people are going to continue to be focused on that. Um, One thing that I think will be big in 2019 is real-time feedback. We saw last year a number of firms introducing platforms where people could give, you know, immediate bursts of feedback, either through an app or through some sort of of program online. Actually, a, a couple of firms were doing this uh, on cards. You know, a, a, they had these cards available on conference tables, and you could write a quick note and sort of give somebody feedback that way. So, I guess all different ways of real-time feedback. Um, but there is, uh, you know, one of one of the platforms that many of us use for evaluations has just now rolled out a new tool for that, and um, that's just driven by popular demand. People are really interested in in the idea of real-time feedback and in how to, you know, how that moves the ball forward. And I think there's something to that. I think in a perfect culture, people would be constantly giving real-time feedback to one another because the law firm profession is an apprenticeship profession. That's how you learn. You learn because people tell you, you did a really good job there, but you could have done, you know, better in this specific space. And, you know, lawyers, new lawyers, and all lawyers really depend on that constant source of feedback as a development tool. And if they're not getting it, then they're not learning at the pace at which they need to be learning. So ideally, we'd all have cultures where that happens organically. And in a lot of places, it does. But real-time feedback is a nice way to supplement that. And so I'm seeing a ton of that. And that's that would be, you know, for example, um, you know, I work, I, I had to take a conference call with a bunch of associates in my office, and immediately after that call, somebody stepped up and answered a tricky question and handled it really appropriately and, you know, with a really nice touch, and the client responded well to that. You know, then I might want to send them a quick note that says, hey, great job today. And sometimes we think it, and often we think it, but we don't say it. And so I think it's trying to close that gap between thinking that positive thought or constructive thought, right? They're both equally important and the communication of it. And so these tools are designed to make that super easy. And I think there's a lot of, um, of real value to tools like that. That's really interesting, tying back to the sort of historic role of apprenticeship in yeah. the development of lawyers in the legal profession. Yeah. Uh, we become so enamored of uh, legal innovation and tools and technology. Uh, but they're really there just to amplify what was really the historic place of mentorship and coaching and teaching. 
that takes place. Yeah, it's really true. And it's sort of, you know, as the profession exploded and, and sort of the number of big law lawyers and lawyers in large firms and really any size firm, you know, expanded to such a degree, you know, you did, you had to try to replicate that model. It was great when, you know, there was an, a partner, a partner and he had his apprentice, literally his apprentice, and the apprentice sat in the same office sometimes at a, you know, a smaller desk sort of in the corner, but kind of watched him do everything. And um, that's a really powerful learning tool. But that's really hard to do when you've got people traveling, when people are all over the place, when there's so many associates to partner ratio. Um, you know, you need to find ways to, to replicate that, that type of learning. And so it's interesting that you can now um, use technology to, to go old school, to your point. So it's a funny, funny full circle. <laughs> all right, well, well, thank you. That, that was terrific. Uh, I'd like to thank my guest, Dr. Milana Hogan, the Chief Legal Talent Officer of Sullivan and Cromwell, and PDC President-elect for sharing her insights today. We look forward to all of you viewing the next edition of PLI's PD Insider. This is Craig Miller of the Practicing Law Institute. Thank you. <laughs>